Amen to that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and thank you for being the God who is on his throne. Lord, uh, that you are indeed our king, and we as your servants uh, bow before you in humble submission, saying you are our God. You are our God, and everything about you is, is, is God, something that is worthy of worship. And so, Father, I pray that that has been our hearts this morning to exalt you, to praise you, to lift your name high. Uh, and God, that that uh, that you have been you have been blessed, Lord. That you have been blessed through our praise, God. We continue that we would, or we pray that we would continue on uh, this uh, this same kind of pattern, God. That our hearts would be uh, seeking you, our hearts would be uh, enthralled by your words to us, God, this morning. And Lord, that we would grow, uh, Father. It, in, in, our, in our desire and our passion and our joy and in our hope and all, of, all those things that you promised to give us in Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that we would, we would grow in those things as we seek your face this morning. Lord, I, I just ask that your, your hand would be heavy on this place. God, through your Holy Spirit, that your glory would fall on this place. And Lord, we would be convicted on the inside. And Lord, we would be uh, expressing that conviction through repentance on the outside. And Lord, help us just to draw back on you to you by your grace. Lord, just, just use this time for your purposes, God. Speak to us individually how each of us need to hear it as we, as we hear your word and as I stand upon it, but behind the cross, so that you may receive all the glory. It's in Jesus' holy name that I pray. Amen. You can go ahead and open up the word of God to First Chronicles chapter 13. First Chronicles chapter 13. And uh, the title of this morning's message is Simulating God. Simulating God is, is what uh, the title is, and that'll make sense here in just about a second. Uh, but about a month ago, Carly and I went on our 10-year anniversary to San Diego. And uh, while we were there, we went on the aircraft carrier, uh, the USS Midway. Now, Midway had multiple levels to it, but there was one level that, and it wasn't the top level, but inside the ship, there was one level that was like the tourist area. It was all for tourists, and you could go all, all in and through the ship, but this one area was the tourist area. They were selling food, they had the gift shop, they had all this kind of stuff, and one of the things that they had inside, inside the, this, this level of the aircraft carrier was they had a whole row of flight simulators. They had an entire row of, of flight simulators. I'm, like, I'm talking about 10 or 12 uh, flight simulators in a row. And I, I don't know how many of you have, have ever ridden one of, uh, one of these flight simulators, but basically, if you look at it from the outside, this is basically what it is. It's a big metal box with, with hydraulic uh, poles on it, and it's just getting shaken and, and moved around like that for, uh, for a couple of minutes. And, uh, and so that's what it looks like on the outside. But if you go on the inside, you sit down and you pretend to be a pilot. And so what the idea is that you simulate the inside of a cockpit and then you get to go on this flight that's being jerked around and, and, and all these kind of things. And, and it's a pretty big deal. All these kids were lined up. But I, something I noticed at the attraction was, except for the few uh, you know, uh, uh, parents that were getting drag, drug along with their kids, for the most part, it was only kids. The, the, the adults didn't want to have anything to do with these flight simulators. Uh, and, and I think there's a couple reasons for that, probably. First off, you know, we get older, we have bad backs, we get motion sickness, you know. And so we, we don't want to experience any of that stuff, especially while we're not at home and, and all that kind of things. But on top of that, I think, obviously, for us, it's just not that much fun. For us, it's not that cool because we realize how fake it is. 
we realize how, how incredibly not close to the truth this thing really is. Now, a kid has this wonderful advantage over us that his imagination is still like miles ahead of where our imagination, from where our imagination has dropped off. And so, so the kid can go in there and kind of just put himself in that world and feel the little movement of the box and be like, yes, I am, I am, in, I am in flight. This is an awesome thing. But an adult goes in there, and there's lights on when you first get in there, and you look up, and there's this exit sign, <laughs> and, and then you, you see a screen that's outlined by black tape all the way around it, uh, and then you look next to you, and there's 15 people in there instead of just one or two, and, and they're wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt, and all of a sudden, what this ride is becomes very, very apparent. It's not going to be a Top Gun experience. What it's going to be is a three-minute video inside of a moving box, all right? And so this is, this is the adult experience of this flight simulator. Well, this same sort of simulation happens in the lives of Christians and happens in the life of, of the local church on a very regular basis. We try to simulate God. We try to simulate God. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean here. What I, or rather what I don't mean, okay? What I don't mean is, is that it's a bad thing to try to emulate God, okay? We should be trying to emulate God. We want to walk. We want to talk. We want to think. We want to act. We want to, we want to do the things that Jesus does. And to a certain degree, Jesus, I mean, uh, or God, through Jesus and through His Holy Spirit has given us this capability. We look in 1 Corinthians 2.16, He says, We have the mind of Christ. Believers, do you, do you believe that about yourself? Do you know that about yourself? That Jesus Christ has given you through His Holy Spirit His mind? And so what that means for us is not, not that we have a glorified mind or not that we have a perfected mind, but we have the same kind of mind. We have the same kind of will. We have the same kind of passions. We have the same kind of strength that Jesus had through His Holy Spirit while He was with us on earth. And this is a good thing. This is a necessary thing. We want to emulate Christ. We want to emulate Christ. What we don't want to do is we don't want to simulate Christ. And here's what I mean by that. As followers of Christ, what we do sometimes is we try to live our lives or run our church apart from following Jesus. We try to to please God without following Jesus. God. We seek God's will without first seeking God. We aim to accomplish His purpose, but we avoid His power. Uh, and when we, <coughs> excuse me, when we simulate God, we can pretend that it's all good. We can be like the child in that simulator and think, oh man, this is great. This is wonderful. Everything is perfect. But we don't even get close to the real thing. So what we're talking about this morning is a story about a man of God desiring to do the will of God apart from God. And so this story, this morning's story is about stimulating God. So let's read our passage. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. It says, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. He then said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and Levites who are, the, who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. Now, before we, we dive into the meat of this, let's, let's get a little bit of background. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you were to turn over a couple of books to your left, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, during the time of the high priest Eli, the Israelites took the ark of God with them to war against the Philistines. The problem with this is they took the ark of God more as a good luck charm than they took the ark of God as, as actually taking God. So that they trusted in the ark and they didn't trust in the God who the ark represented. And, and maybe a more modern uh, way of understanding this would be to look at crosses. We, uh, uh, many people don't trust Jesus. But yet they have a cross on their necklace. Yet they have a cross on their shirt. Yet they hang crosses on their wall. It's not that they trust Jesus, but they like the sign. They, they think it's cool about something about the sign. And this is what uh, uh, the Israelites were doing. The Israelites were saying, okay, we're not worried about God. We're worried about this ark. This ark is what it's all about. And God saw the truth in their hearts, and the Philistines battered them. The Philistines took them to town and destroyed them, and the ark was captured. Now, at that point, God said, okay, enough's enough. (laughs) And God said, okay, my glory is not going to be defamed because my people are being dumb. And so when the Philistines have the ark, there is a bit of a spiritual vandalization going on inside the temples of the Philistine gods. And God's just wreaking havoc on them. And then all all of a sudden, the people start to, to get tumors. And so something dawns on them. There's something real about the God of the Israelites. And so we're going to return this thing. We don't want to have to endure what we're having to endure because we have this ark and so they said let's let's build a cart let's put this thing on a cart and let's send it back to israel and so that's what they do they send it back to israel and it ends up in kiriath jerim in judah at the house of abinadab well the ark arrives at this place and during the entire reign of saul it remains there during the entire reign of saul the ark remains at this place well after saul is is removed from the throne Then David ascends to the throne. And as David ascends to the throne, he remembers the ark. And he comes up with a plan. And this is the plan that we just read. Let's go get it. (laughs) Let's go get this ark. Come on, I'm going to talk to you people and let's let's go get this ark. And if you look at it, David's leadership style is great. What David does is, is wonderful. He goes to the leaders first. He goes and he says, all right, here's my, here's my commanders of thousands. Here's my commanders of hundreds. Here's my people that are, that are, uh, that are deep entren- deeply entrenched with my people in the pasture land. Here are my, people that are, here are my leaders that are deeply entrenched with the people in the cities. And I'm just going to cover my bases all the way from Dan to Beersheba. We are going to be looking, uh, we're going to be talking to our people and letting them know this is what we're going to happen. This is a great thing. This is David using his, his leadership uh, skills. And he's, he's just saying, this is what I've been thinking, guys. Let me lay this out uh, before you. And, and the reality is, this, this thought of David is a really, really godly thought. This is a really good thought. This is a really godly thought. He wants to return the ark of God to its rightful place. It wasn't in enemy hands anymore, but, but it wasn't where God designed for it to be, Right? The ark was designed to be in the Holy of Holies. It was designed to be in that inner sanctuary within the tabernacle. It was a place where God's glory was, was to reside in between the cherubim. And we can, we can see a reference to that in verse 6 of, of our passage. And, and so that's where God's glory was to reside. And then once a year, the, the, the high priest was to go in there and make a sacrifice for the nation. And what we see is for 60 years, this hasn't been happening. For 60 years... The way that God prescribed for His people to worship Him, the way that God prescribed for His name to be glorified, had been abandoned. 
We get a mention in our passage of the priest and the Levites. It was the job of the priest and the Levites to lead the worship of the people. It was the job of the priest and the Levites to take care of the tabernacle. And so what we have here is just a blatant disregard for the honor of God going on for 60 years. I say all that just to say this. Again, it was a really good idea. (laughs) David had a really good idea. And sometimes, guys, we have really good ideas. Sometimes we have some really, really good ideas. Maybe, maybe we want a certain program within the church. We think if we bring this program within the church, it's going to do wonders for the church. Maybe we want a certain Bible study within the church. And so if we bring this Bible study to the church, it's going to work wonders on a personal level. Maybe we want to, we want to join a social club, or we want to buy a new car, or we want to, as maybe as a teenager, to play a particular sport, or we want to take a big trip, or all kinds of things that we could want to do. And all of these things are potentially good things that we could be really, really excited about. And then we, we're like, David, we go the extra step and we talk to the right people. We go to the right committee and we let them know about it. Or we go to uh, our wife or we go to our husband or we go to our parents or whatever it, whatever it may be and we let everybody know about this, alright? So there's no doubt that this is a good idea. There's no doubt that this is a good thing that David is doing and it's good things that we do, but the problem comes in the implementation. The problem comes in the implementation of David's plan what we see in verse 2 is what david says it says if it seems good to you and if it's the will of the lord our god is anybody seeing what's wrong with this already if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the lord our god see he's going to the right sources he's going to his his leaders and he's going to the lord But he's going in the wrong order. He's going in the wrong order. His priorities are backwards. Let me ask it in a different way. What if it is God's will, but it doesn't seem good to the people? Are we any less bound to the will of God, to to obey and to be subject to the will of God, if no one in the whole world agrees with us? Absolutely not. We are bound to God's will because He is God. Because He is King. Because He is Lord. Because He is Master. We are bound to Him. And so it does make a difference. And I understand there's probably some really pragmatic people. I married a pragmatic person. She looks at something like this and she says, this is dumb. (laughs) She looks at something like this and she says, in the end it's not going to make any difference. So what difference does it make in the process? Nelson, you're making a fuss about the order, but if God's for it and the people are for it, what difference does it make? I think you could equate this to this being the same kind of argument that a kid makes about making his bed. If I'm sleeping in it every night and I'm going to mess it up, every, and how many of us have made this argument? How many of us have had kids? I mean, we've all done this, right? We've all been around it. I, if I'm sleeping in it every night and I'm going to mess it up every single day, what's the point of making it at all? And here's the point. Your parents want you to. <laughs> here's the point. It is your parents' will that you make your bed. So what's the reality of this situation or that situation about the beds is if we don't make our kids make their beds, then what won't they do? Make their beds. If we don't make them do it, they're not going to do it. And if the same way, if we don't prioritize the will of God, we will exclude Him altogether. If we do not prioritize the will of God in our lives, we will exclude Him altogether. And this is what David does. A man after God's own heart 
He claims he wants the people's approval and to seek the Lord's will. But what does he actually do? We get to verse 4 again, and it says, The whole assembly agreed to this because it seemed right to all the people. That is, I checked with the people, but I didn't check with God. (laughs) He said, all right, I want it to be all in. I want everybody to be a part of this. I want us all to be on board. I want everybody to jump in. And I want God to be all over this. I want God's will to be all in and through this. This is what I want. But I'm not even going to check with God. I'm just going to check with the people. And so he makes a plan to do something for the Lord, and he tags the name of God on it, but he never actually seeks the Lord in it. Are we not guilty of tagging God's name on the end of our plans as well? Are we not guilty of the exact same thing? We referred to this on a Sunday night one time. as uh, We compared this to a ribbon-cutting ceremony. We come up with an idea, we do all the planning, we do all the work, we take all of our time, raise all of the money, go forward with a plan, and then when all the work is done, when we have put all our effort in, then we say, let's have a ribbon cutting ceremony and have someone come in and bless it. Let's have someone come in and now let's pray over it. Now let's do, cover this with prayer. Here's the problem with that. God doesn't bless our ideas. He blesses His ideas. God doesn't bless our ideas. God blesses His ideas. His ideas already have His wisdom and His power behind them. His plans cannot be thwarted. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so here's the point. God must be the priority behind our planning from the beginning. Let me rephrase that or re-say that, but with a little emphasis. God must be our priority. God must be our priority behind all our planning from the beginning. He's not the bow that we put on the end to make it look pretty. He's not the, he's not the ornament to make, it, to make it shine. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. But it begins with, commit to the Lord. James 4.15 says, You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. But it starts off by saying... If it is the Lord's will. And we see this example in Jesus Christ. We see this type of thinking. We see this type of living. We see this type of life in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus did. He did not act on his own according to scripture. But he was led by the Father in everything that he did. (coughs) Excuse me. John chapter 5 verses 19 through 22 and the skipping down to verse 30, 30 says this. This is Jesus. He says, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. And so he kind of concludes here on this idea of of judging in verse 30. He says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Here's the idea. Jesus is so focused on the Father that he is unable to do anything apart from the will of God. Jesus is so focused on the Father that he is unable to do anything apart from the will of God. So what we see is God has a plan of grace. 
God has a plan of grace. And this, was, this is what we see. This is what he talks about in this passage in John chapter 5. He says, he says uh, you see, God rose, thing, rose people from the dead. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I saw his plan. I know his will. He wants people to be raised from dead. He wants people to have this grace. And it's not an easy plan, but a burdensome one. It is one where I have to take up their sins. And one where I have to take up their infirmities. It is one where I have to be crushed. And truthfully, I'm not looking forward to it all that much. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus made it clear. (laughs) He made it clear that he could have gotten out of this situation. This whole cross situation. This whole bearing the burden of our sin for all of eternity situation. Matthew 26, 53 and 54, he says, Do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? point is, Jesus saw it coming. He knew our sin. He knew our hate. He knew our problems. He knew everything about us that was wicked and evil and dirty. And nonetheless, because his Father willed it, it was more important to him to endure it because of his Father's will than to push it off to the side. We are nothing. We are nothing but poor, wretched sinners, only worthy of condemnation, only worthy of judgment, only worthy of an eternity in hell. But praise be to God that Jesus, in spite of this, in spite of all that we would, we would do to him, in spite of all that it would cost him, he sought God's will and he submitted to God's will. And this is what we're to do, guys. This is what we're to do. We are to emulate, not simulate God. We are to seek God's will the way that Jesus sought God's will by doing what? Seeking God. See, that's, that's the thing. We, we, we have this question and we'll talk about it here in a minute, but the, the truth of the matter is we, we're always kind of wondering, what is the will of God for my life? What are, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? What is God's will for my life? God's will, the way you find out God's will is by seeking God. He's the source. He is the answer. Seek God. And when we discover what God's will is, we submit to it. And how do we submit to God's will? Submit to God. That's the key. It's not any any magic trick. It's not anything that anybody's hiding. Seek God and then submit to God. let's, Let's get a little more nuts and bolts, okay? Let's get a little more nuts and bolts when it comes to discovering God's will. I think as men, sometimes, men in the house, we have this little cop-out thing. We do this thing, and it's not really a cop-out. It's, it's, it's true, too. Uh, but, but sometimes when, when people ask us to make a commitment, people ask us to do something, we say, first I have to check with the boss, right? <laughs> this, is, this is something that we say as men. Well, first I've got to check with the boss. And what we mean is we've got to check with our wives. And so, so yesterday, I thought I had a good idea. Oh, yeah. I thought I had a good idea. I was in DeRitter, and we had just gone uh, duck hunting. It was, it was opening morning of teal season, and so we were leaving the rice field. It was still pretty early. There weren't a lot of birds flying, so we got out of there kind of early. And, uh, and, and I thought to myself, Carson's never been to an LSU football game. We're playing Kent State. There's going to be all kinds of tickets available. I, I'll have Carly go drop me off at Tiger Stadium, and then Carson and I will go get a couple of tickets, we'll go to the game, and then I have a friend who's going to be at the game who has to come back through this way in order uh, to get back to where he's going, and he can just drop me off. Man, 
I had it planned out. <laughs> I had the whole thing working together. And then I thought to myself, I better run it by the boss. <laughs> I better, better check this one. And then as I ran it by the boss, she proceeded to outline numerous ways that this plan had a lot of errors in it. <laughs> this plan had a lot of fault, a lot of problem. And guess what? She was right. I didn't see it, but she was right. Well, when it comes to seeking the will of God, we kind of come back to that same conclusion. Ask the boss. Ask the boss. Ask the Lord. And there's a four-step method, and, and this is the way I like to think of it. I like to think of it like a chair. When we sit down in a chair, we place all of our weight into the chair. We are, we are putting our trust, we are putting our faith into this chair that it's going to hold us up. And this chair has four legs. And so I have a four-step test that I believe you can put your weight on, you can put your faith in, and in, in that you can seek the will of God. The first one is, does it line up with Scripture? When you were thinking about what you want to do, you were making your plan, you were thinking about it, does it line up with Scripture? If it is not in line with Scripture, period, the end, it is not God's will. Period. No, no need for discussion, no need for banter. It is not God's will if it opposes what is mentioned in this book. The problem is, the Bible doesn't tell you whether you should go to MC or to Mississippi State. Right? So, so it doesn't give you that specific of direction. And so sometimes you can look at this test and realize, okay, I can, I can draw some principles out, but I don't have a clear conclusion. So we go to the second test. Seek godly counsel. Seek godly counsel. When you think of people that you know that you trust in the Lord, people you know who love the Lord, people you know who are deep in the word of God, people you know who love you and want what's best for you, and you gather these people around you, and you lay out your plan to them, and they start shooting back uh, feedback to you, that's going to be a good, a good test. It's going to be a good test to figure out what the Lord's will is on this thing. It's going to be a good test to figure out what's going on. If, if they're against it, if you see that four out of five of your closest people are against it, well, there's a chance that you're, you might be not seeing something, you might be walking into something that you don't mean to walk into, okay? So seek out godly counsel. The third thing is divine providence. Divine providence. Does it seem more clear that God is opening doors or shutting doors? Does it seem more obvious that you are having to fight your way through and bully and punch and scrape and every time every corner there seems to be another obstacle and i know we have in, our, in the back of our mind well this is satan actually trying to stop me from doing this and, and, and we have to balance all those kind of things but is in through divine providence are more doors being opened or more doors being shut and then finally the fourth thing is pray specifically pray specifically Pray earnestly and then wait patiently for God to reveal His will His will to you. Greg Mott, he's the pastor of First Houston, and he made a, he made a list, a kind of a comparison between churches that pray and churches that are devoted to prayer. And we can apply this on a personal level too. He says, people that pray, pray about what they do. People devoted to prayer do things by prayer. People that pray ask God to bless what they're doing. People devoted to prayer ask God to enable them to do what He is blessing. People that pray, and this one I think is the most powerful, people that pray use God. People devoted to prayer are used by God. And so we have this threefold reality of prayer. 
Prayer is intended to rely on God to determine His plans for us. We rely on God to determine His plans for us. And prayer is intended to trust in God to fulfill His plans through us. And then finally, prayer is intended to praise God for completing His plans among us. And so, as you seek to do God's will for your life, here's the question this morning. Are you seeking God? The question simply is, we, I, mean, I would hope that we would go around this room this morning and we would say, yes, I want what God's will is for my life. Well, the question is, if you're seeking that will, are you seeking God? Or are you just simulating Him? Are you just simulating Him? See, David, David made plans. David stamped his, God's name on that plans, and then he proceeded without seeking God. And so the question is, what about you? Are you living a life of, of a, as a proclaiming Christian, but a practicing atheist? Now that, that's a strong, strong question. That is a strong statement. But if you think about it, if God is not affecting your behavior, if God is not affecting your attitude, and God is not affecting your decisions, what difference is there in your life between that of an atheist? So are you a proclaiming Christian but a practicing atheist? Or maybe on a more church level, maybe on a more uh, Sunday school level, do you know all the answers but are leaving God out of the equation? See, if that's you, if that's me, if that's us as a church and individually, if that's who we are, then we need to repent. We need to get before the Lord and we need to repent and place Jesus back into the formula of our lives. We need to get Jesus back into the middle of our lives because He is the right solution. And apart from Him, according to His word, we can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing. We can make all the plans. We can build all the walls. We can set up our great temple. But in the end, it will be a house of cards if Jesus is not in it. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, uh, and, I, and I thank you. I thank you that, that there is a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. I thank you that, <coughs> that I don't have to worry about the futility of, of my own attempts forever. I don't have to worry about how, how little uh, that I can, I can accomplish on my own. Because I do have you, and you are my Lord, and you are my King, and you are my rock, and you are my source. And God, for those who are in here this morning who have given their lives over to You, Jesus, they have You. And You are their source as well. And so, Father, I pray that they would build their house on the rock and not on the sand. Lord, our programs have a shelf life. Our movements are are sporadic but you are eternal and so God I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would put our trust in the eternal we would put our trust in the one who does not shift like the shadows but one who is firm and holds steady forever Lord, obviously, I I mean this on a very practical level. 
I mean this on a very day-to-day, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, may it all be for the glory of God kind of way, but I also mean it on a very eternal, non-ending level that maybe some in here have never put their trust in you as Savior. Some in here have never repented of their sins, turned away from a lifestyle and said, Jesus, I am all yours. I trust you completely. God, may that happen this morning. Lord, we trust you. We ask that you would, you would show up in this moment. God, you would be honored, you would be glorified, and we would respond to what you are doing in us. Lord, take this time. Take this time, Lord, to meet with us. May we be humble enough to respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.